0: Zadie Smith is one of the best writers of her generation. She's smart and funny, and she makes being smart seem really cool. In her new collection of essays, Feel Free, out now, she talks about Jay-Z and Get Out and Facebook and visual artists and classic books and family and Bieber. Yep, Justin Bieber. So I thought, I should just email Zadie and say, hey, can we just talk about everything? And she said, yeah. This is a really fun one. Today, Zadie Smith on Tour a Show. I've known her almost 20 years. I interviewed her for MTV2 when White Teeth was out. And it's been a thrill to watch Zadie grow and operate as a public intellectual, dropping great novels and dope essays and showing herself to just be a really interesting person to listen to. I mean, putting the awesomeness of her accent aside, in person, Zadie's as smart and as fun as her greatest books. And she's disarmingly humble in a way that just makes you want to root for her success. So settle in. I asked her to talk to me for an hour, and we sat there for two. We sat there in our studio at 78th and Broadway, and just, this is the most fun episode I've had yet. So I'm proud to present Zadie Smith on Tour Show. So let's talk about writing. What do you love about it? Um, I, I
1: like it, I like having an, an artificial set task uh, to fill the, the day set by yourself. It, it's that's pleasant. I mean, what else are you going to do? It's a it's a long life, <laughs> and I, I like the idea of a series of tasks I've set myself completely unnecessary tasks that nobody mm-hmm. has to care about or. But I've set them a series of books in my mind and then when they're done, I'll be done. I think everyone does that with their life. It's just writing is a very um, kind of formal way to do it. Mm. I I can measure out the years this way.
0: So do you set day goals? Do you you set goals?
1: No, because if I did, I would be very frustrated. Um, So no. But I, I just have hopes of every day. but I haven't written in months and months, you know, at the moment I'm in a yeah I'm reading. I'm in a like period of reading and preparing. but um preparing to start another one. Yeah, but it, it's much more important for me to be able to read every day than write every day. I, I can live without writing, but if I don't get to read, I get very antsy.
0: really? Yeah. So how many hours a day are you reading?
1: At the moment, all all hours that I'm not uh, raising children.
0: So, you drop them off and you go read go until you go pick read them and up. and
1: then I lie on the sofa for about six hours reading, and then I pick them up again. And then after they're in bed, and, you read again. And I read a bit more and I go to sleep. Yeah, that's my life. What at you, the moment, it's not normally uh, like that, but at the moment, that's it. Yeah. What are you I'm, reading? I'm reading a lot of stuff about uh, the 1800s for something I have to write. So, it's just a lot of research, I suppose. Non fiction. Non fiction, yeah, for the most part. Some novels, too. And sometimes I. Um, use the bedtime reading with the children as surreptitious research. They don't realize it, but oh, there's a re- reason we're reading David Copperfield. <laughs> but they, they don't need to know that. <laughs> what do
0: you love so much about reading?
1: Uh, I I read a really good book recently by a guy called Francis Buffett, a British writer, who said um, that actually it's a kind of addiction and The strange thing about it is it's a sanctioned addiction. So nobody tells you off for reading a lot when you're a kid, particularly if you're from a working class home or or an immigrant home. As I was, everybody's very enthusiastic about it because it seems like a good sign. Um, But what he said, in his case, he's also a reading addict. He had a very ill sister who died when he was young. And reading for him was a way of escaping the world. And I think that's always basically true. I don't think children who read as much as I did when I was a child are reading because they're delirious with joy <laughs> about mm, their lives. Mm. It is a kind of addiction, it is a kind of escapism. And, and you realize it when, like, even to come to this podcast, I've got maybe five heavy books in my bag. What, what did I imagine was going to happen on the <laughs> 22 minute subway what did, ride? What did you bring? Uh, We've we got um, Inside the Victorian Home, uh, a book about historical. Uh, 19th century court case Uh, and lots of, I mean, a load of uh, (laughs) heavy (laughs) hardback books so um, uh, I think reading for me is just the way I am in the world, that's how I operate and and what was interesting about France book is the first time I'd heard it expressed as a kind of personal flaw, you know because if if every spare moment you have you want to be somewhere else or inside a book or that's that is a little problematic, actually. It's not that different from the people who want to get high or want to be <laughs> on Instagram every moment of the day. It's all about not being where you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I i guess I was raised that way, very focused on being elsewhere.
0: So when you're in your reading JAG, yeah. are you bouncing around or is it just like one book and finish it and then the next That's book? That's what I'm
1: trying to do. But then there's all the books, you know, novels and Books that aren't to do with work, books by friends, books that are meant to be reviewed. Books, I mean, you know this beat. So it's a very tall tower of of obligatory reading as well. So I kind of mix it all in. I'm happiest when I'm when I'm doing that. You know, for me, it's a kind of comforting place to be.
0: I find myself like get excited about a book, and inevitably, before I finish it. Something else more exciting
1: emerges. I think this is a common problem these days,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> Either new or just something that I've discovered, and I must put this aside and read this yeah, right that now. That happens a lot. And never can I finish that without oh my god! I must read this right. right now. And
1: I feel that, but but I notice now exactly because of that distraction, which I have feel too, that it's a really great novel when I when I don't stop. You know, mm. I don't want to be anywhere else when I'm really inside it and focused on it. Um, I take that as a sign of greatness now because it is very easy to step aside for a million other things yeah
0: so you read while you write
1: yeah, sure
0: how do you what is like how do you do that and what are you doing?
1: um well if i'm if I'm writing a novel I'm I'm kind of learning or stealing from from other people you know all the time um, and just sometimes because writing is such a, a strange uh, ground zero thing, like every time you sit down to write something new, it's entirely possible that you can't write at all. I mean, it's not, it's not like piano playing, you know, like a skill which is permanent and you can pass on, or even rapping or where you know you can do something. Writing, every time you start, it could just be awful, I mean, and that can happen at any time. And as we all know from writers we love who write terrible books or terrible mm. essays or terrible stories, that's always a possibility every single time you sit down to write. And for that reason, I think people find it quite stressful to do, me too. But when I'm reading other people's work, part of it is, it can be just schadenfreude, like, oh, this is terrible, and that makes me feel better, like, oh, well, if he's published and he's awful, so maybe I should, <laughs> it'll be okay. Or it can go the other way where you're something is so wonderful, it kind of is, it inspires you to meet it at its level or try to meet it. And sometimes it's just about reading something that gets you, going that has a kind of rhythm to it which, which then transfers into your work and you're able to write a bit more fluidly that day
0: yeah it I mean from your description of I imagine you at the computer yeah uh, with all these right open books right. around and it seems like like a painter and I need a little more blue so I'll dip into this right. but it's like I need a little more of I don't know what so I'll read a little of David Foster Wallace Right. Or a little less of this, or read a little, is it like that?
1: It is like that, but I, I do think as you get older, you have to uh, get a little more confident, you know, that you can sit down in front of that blank page, and it's not going to be a disaster today. When I was younger, I was a lot more anxious, and a lot more in need of um, textual support from mm. all areas. Um, and sometimes it's just about being in a certain mood. Like when I was writing in Swing Time, I wanted to be, kind of surrounded by by black culture, you know, one way or another. So it was mm. about books and music and paintings and I wanted to be in that mind state, you know. And now I'm writing a book which is in England in you know, 150 years ago and I want to be in that mind state. It's about being subsumed in something mm. for a while. That's part of the pleasure of doing it, in fact.
0: I don't... I get nervous for performance, live performance. Right. I don't get... Nervous the way you're describing for writing, like it may turn out bad, right? Because I'm like, we have time, we can edit it a hundred more times. <laughs> I know. You know, we have another week or a month, or like there's time. But when you perform, it's this is no, it.
1: That's it. And I'm, when I see like my brothers are performers, when I see them doing that, I am um, glad that I don't do that. <laughs> 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 but, um, but I guess my anxiety is different, it's about, um, being delusional. I think that's what writers are always frightened of, that you've you've lost the ability to see whatever you're doing clearly, objectively, and as it is. Um, that's always my concern, that I'm writing something that I think is good, and in fact, it's bad. It's a simple childish anxiety, <laughs> but it preoccupies me a lot of the time. <laughs>
0: I, I feel like, like, I guess like, the, the esprit Escalier is what I'm... Would most be afraid of, and I'm trying to imagine what will I want to have said right. after it's published. Right. And can I think of that now? Right. So I'm and like find a way to like <laughs> drain myself and like imagine that. And it's hard. It's hard.
1: It can be hard. And and then I guess nowadays there's also the added idea of a of an insta- instantaneous audience with mm. strong opinions. Um, I also have to try and not think about that when I'm writing. So, I'm trying not to think about that, yeah.
0: So are you in agony while you're going through it?
1: No, no. Uh, like, at the moment, um, but I think most writers would say but before the novel starts is a time of great joy, you know, where every, everything <laughs> seems possible. Everything's possible. Yeah, and it, it seems like such a beautiful novel in your mind and you begin it with such high spirits. It definitely gets a little trickier towards the middle and um, there is never that sense, like... Uh, like if I see my brother doing stand up, or or the times when I used to sing, uh, there are moments in the middle of things like that where you you just let go and and let instinct take over. And uh, the more you do that when you sing, the more you do that when you're on a riff in comedy, uh, the better it can be. I I for me writing is very not it's very uh, rarely like that. The person who's let let's go at the typewriter or the laptop and is happily banging away thinking things are going terrific. That's usually the passage of a novel where you're like, oh dear God, no. <laughs> someone, someone should have told you to stop there. It's a different, there's too much consciousness is, is necessary at all times, you know. You have to be aware and on top and and looseness is, is hard to achieve in writing. I think. It happens sometimes. There are beautiful moments. If you're reading someone like, I don't know, Langston Hughes, there are moments in those poems where I've Feel this incredible freedom line by line, but but my husband's a poet, and I know that even when you read that and you feel it, it's usually been gone over a thousand times. You know, Mm. even what seems natural and fluid is artificial. Writing is kind of an artificial art form,
0: (laughs) artificial in that it's it pretends to be of one moment, but it's not
1: right. It seems temporal when you're reading it, like this thing, beautiful soaring thing is happening in the moment but as you say it's been gone over and over and over and it's calculated in a certain sense to get a reaction out of you a certain reaction so it's um it's different than the performing arts where there's a fluidity you know between audience and performer i love the tinkering yeah the tinkering is my favorite bit for sure not the making my students always talking about creativity and being creative and that's the part i really hey, (laughs) it's afterwards, it's the editing, the smoothing out, the perfecting of something. Yeah, That's very satisfying and I love to do it for myself or for anybody else. I'm always, anybody wants to send me something to edit, I'm always happy. Yeah. Because the only thing you're doing at that point is making something better. Whereas in the creative stage, you have no idea whether you're making it better or worse. (laughs) Anything could be happening.
0: No, when you find, when I find like those moments, like the 10th edit, the 15th edit, and I'm like, oh, if I remove that sentence or if I move that graph there, or this idea is, you know, break it into two and like, ah, I feel this release and I didn't even know that I was stressed about it.
1: Yeah, but it's also amazing that you can read something 15 times and not see that obvious cut. That's the part which is kind of anxiety-making because for various reasons, vanity, success, uh, boredom, all kinds of things can make you increasingly blind to that page and that edit, you know.
0: Um, I remember the novel that I published, which nobody should read. Um, I was in Jamaica. I used to go to Jamaica to Rock House for December. Oh, lovely to to finish it, but I didn't have children then, right. and I didn't have a wife then, they so could do. Why are that. we even
1: talking about this right. amazing time? Right.
0: So and I and I and I finally had it. Like I had like, you know, like three quarters of it written and I had like an outline for where everything was going. And it was like this one moment, I finally had it like all in mind at once, but it's like really mentally hard to hold the entire novel in your mind at once. And I remember feeling like I have lost my mind, but I will recover this book (laughs) out of it. But I have now gone crazy.
1: I think uh, keeping a whole novel in your mind gets harder and harder. It's easiest for young people, I think. I really, when I think about debut novels, first novels, I see the energy and flexibility of a young mind able to keep the whole thing together. It's no coincidence that older people in their seventies and eighties, the novels get smaller and smaller. You know, they tend <laughs> to get narrow, somewhat anemic. It, it is hard to keep all those balls in the air at the same time. Mm. Um, but now this period, like the forties, fifties, seems to me a very good time for a writer. You know, you still have your brain pretty much but you also have a little more control
0: influencer it's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days there is a woman who went the distance who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life her name elizabeth taylor i'm katie perry this is the story of the original influencer this is elizabeth the first Elizabeth the First, the podcast. Wherever you listen,
1: um, it's a good moment. Well,
0: the, the challenge for us as forty something, oh, yeah. soon to be more, yeah, um, is that we have these families, yes, and and we both have young children, right. and I mean, I, I used to get a lot done in the afternoon, and now they're about to come home at three thirty, four o'clock, and you know. they're in my hair until eight yeah. thirty. And I'm like, I'll oh, never get that time back.
1: No, it'll never come back. But I, I've been reading a lot of books about Dickens recently who had 10 children mm. and was very, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying he was a wonderful father because he wasn't, but he loved family. He had a kind of uh, fascination with domestic life. And he would write everything pretty much between 7 a.m., 8 a.m., which, of course, begs the question of who was with the children mm-hmm. at that hour. But at about 2 o'clock, he was done. He wanted to see the kids. He wanted to go out for dinner. He wanted to have fun. He was he was the man who liked life, you know. And when he traveled, he took them all in a crazy caravan, like five different carriages to Paris or to Rome, 10 kids, God knows how many nannies, cooks, and you know, everybody came together. So I, I think it is possible to write in this uh, chaos. And I do think the hours necessary are exaggerated. Like, since I had... Kids, everything I've written, I've written basically between 10 a.m. and 2.30, you know. Mm. But, but that 10 a.m. and 2.30 has to be then really undisturbed, like no email, no internet. That's a lot of hours, in fact, if you're not doing anything else.
0: So this is one of the things that you have talked about that really moves me positively and negatively. When you talk about protecting your writing time. Yes. And... How do you? How do you do that?
1: But but only only when they're in school. Like the previous idea. Like I when I went to college, I met a lot of people who were the children of so-called creative people, artists, writers, and the stories they told. and These are stories from the seventies and eighties, were yes. completely horrifying to me. Yes. You know, these like grandiose yes assholes who would tell their children to their faces, look, I'm making great art in here. Don't come in here Ugh. at any hour ever. Yes. And they were proud of it. You know, they yes. really thought they'd achieved something extraordinary. And of course, when I met their children, their children hated them with a <laughs> million sons <laughs> and had rebelled in every single way and were disgusted by it. Um, and also the art that they created was not that great. You know, it was uh, self-aggrandizing, uh, totally self-focused. And, um, but there was certainly a lot of it, and I think there's no doubt that if you protect your time from everybody and from life itself, you will write those 28 novels or more, and and maybe you'll win all those prizes. And but for me, it's not a it's it's not about mothering versus writing. It's about l- life versus writing. And I I I do ha- have quite a, not as much hunger as Dickens, but I like life. You know, yeah, I want to be in it and to live it and. Uh, I used to think, oh, if only I had all day long to write and read, but that life is a barren one, the way I would do it. Yeah. It would be something you wouldn't want to live, actually. So I'm I'm glad I've been rescued from it.
0: Um, You talk about, I I think of this all the time, writing on a computer that's not connected to the Internet or just distancing yourself from the Internet for a certain period of time. Yeah. And I find it impossible to do because there's yeah. always something i got to check, right. some idea i got to play out, um, and inevitably you go down a rabbit hole and you're like, yeah. I
1: 30 this, minutes doing this. This is my um, advice. I mean, it's not uh, everybody can do whatever they want to do, but uh, if you check this process you're talking about, you, you, there's email. I know there's email and there's things you need to Google. and But uh, if you just made a little note of all those things and didn't check them till say, 5 o'clock, you would do all that checking in 20 minutes. It would take you 20 minutes to go through your email and Google whatever it was. If you do it all the way through the day, you might lose three and a half hours. Because what's Cardi B doing and then something blah, blah blah and Kendrick and somebody that's three and a half hours. What? So it's it's up to it's up to you. Like what well, do you want to do with your time?
0: How about what is this what is this word that I'm choosing really mean and is it really the right word for this it, It's space? annoying.
1: I bracket it and I think I really wish I'd go online and check it right now, but. It's worth it for me just to hold it there and come back in four hours and just check it in what will be a 30 second operation instead of a day long Google hole.
0: So you're just that disciplined.
1: No, it's not discipline, it's just necessity because I don't have time to waste. Yeah. I just don't have it.
0: I want to get more granular. Um, (laughs) What is the difference between a good sentence and a great
1: sentence? Um, for me a good sentence will do uh, the, the problem is between good sentences and terrible sentences which are everywhere um, so, so a lot of what's going on in the moment even at quite high levels is just uh, uh, mistaken usage like uh, my students laugh at me when I say you know, most of what we'll be doing 14 weeks is just really correcting grammar and vocabulary because they consider themselves and they are brilliant young people but um, but something is going wrong in the schools. Also. I don't know what's going on, but people are not using language um, correctly. It's, it's way beyond are using it in a beautiful way or a flowery or interesting way. I'm only interested in correct. If it were correct, you've already scaled Everest as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I saw it like... I, someone, one of my publishers sent me a thing about this new book and it was on like a very respectable website and it was a little short review and it said... Um, Sadie Smith, who's gathered, gathered so much opprobrium throughout her career. But the word, that word <laughs> means, um, you know, disgust and hatred. And they they thought it meant... To, it's people literally using the mm. wrong words to describe <laughs> what they need to <laughs> describe. That's that's really a problem for me.
0: But you're, you're kind of getting at something that I've tried to do or have noticed myself doing. Because when I got out of graduate school, I thought... Um, If I just write beautiful sentences, the world will rush to my books and everything will work out. And after a couple of years, I realized nobody wants the beautiful sentences. And when I got down to stop paying attention to the structure and the architecture and the prettiness of the sentence and just how can I directly communicate these ideas and get down to like the nub of the truth of the idea.
1: Truth. That's what people are urgently
0: in need of. That's the thing. Right.
1: Yeah. Truth in itself is is beautiful. To quote a very old idea, um, and clarity is beautiful, um, and uh, sentences elaborate sentences can also be beautiful, but without a, a sense of um, an urgency that you're really trying to convey something other than just their beauty. There's not much use in them.
0: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door. Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So, if all the words are used correctly.
1: Yes. And then and then something is risked. I don't think there's any point in writing if you're not risking something.
2: Well,
1: um, the most obvious kind, I guess, today is, is revelation. People think the point of writing is to reveal something about themselves, maybe something hidden or... Um, that can be true, but there are other kinds of of risks you can take. Um, when you're really, really trying to tell the truth about something, it usually doesn't look too pretty <laughs> on you, you know? The real truth is usually quite hard to tell and, and doesn't often put you in the best light. And that, that kind of writing interests me. Um, a writing that dares to be... Um, To say what it thinks, even in the face of a mass opinion on the other side, Um, a writing that tries to uh, get to the core of something without being swayed by fashion or uh, even important things like community—it's very hard to write opposite community. You know, community seems such a wonderful thing, and you want to be a part of a community, but everybody. Can feel a part of something and also have that section of themselves which disagrees. Yeah, um, and to express that disagreement can be hard.
0: To challenge the community, right. I feel differently.
1: Right, right. To feel differently.
0: Yeah, it's, it's there seems to be no shortage of people who will say, "I feel opposite all of you." Yeah, to, but that's not quite the same thing. Right, to make a name.
1: Yeah, and it's usually a, a kind of self-aggrandizing thing, as if your opinion is is a valuable thing in itself. I, I don't really feel that way. <laughs> you,
0: you, well, <laughs> you, you don't feel that way.
1: No, I don't. Uh,
0: you have like, I mean, you, I, I mean, you are so humble, and 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 it's and and you've always been so humble. But I mean, like, you do have like the I world have, saying, "Hey, we are curious in your opinion on any number of things."
1: But for me, they have to be. Um, it's a difference between. Taking positions which are like uh, something that acc- accrues to you, as if uh, you—I wear this great dress, I have these great shoes, I have these great opinions. That's not what I. <laughs> that's not what interests me. I'm interested in hearing people think about something, really think it through, really discuss it. Yeah, but I'm not. If you have a selection of the right opinions or the wrong opinions, I, I they're not um, commodities. You know, that's not something that concerns me. Hmm. So um, mm,
0: well, nobody has like, nobody no, like nobody's like. Well, he's always right. Like you no, know, you're right and you're wrong. And
1: but but there there is a sense of establishing your identity by through agreement or disagreement, just by in any way relating to this mass, this group. And I, I when I'm trying to think about something, I I'm just trying to think what is it I really think in, independently of of what anybody else is saying. Yeah. What is it I really think? Yeah. And, what, and what does it mean that I think that? And do I think it because I want to think it? Is it uh, wishful thinking? It, am I getting some advantage out of it? You have to interrogate whatever you think a few times over.
0: What else is the... Uh, so you want to go good, bad, not good degree. <laughs> so what else is the difference between between beyond being correct, beyond risking something, the difference between good and bad writing in general?
1: Um, I do think like when, when I'm emailing. If you have a wide uh, series of email acquaintances, you might notice that there are certain people, they could be doing any job in the world. It could be your old aunt or who just, they're the emails you immediately want to read. That's called having a voice and that's strange. It happens all over the place to non-writers, to all kinds of people. I'm always very curious about it. I have my email and I think, oh, there's someone I want to open first because the way they email... I, I wanna read that. And there are other people who you'd rather die than read their email, but you know sooner or later you're gonna to have to read the seven paragraphs with the ellipsis and the you know, you know what you know what it's gonna be like. So that interests me that there is something there is an innate uh gift for clarity in certain people, um, who might never even consider themselves writers in a million years, but they have something there. Yeah. When they write it's direct, you understand them and you and you feel the force of their personality behind it. So that's the part I think is that's hard to um hard to teach um but I, I like to see that and um yeah a voice i suppose
0: my son wrote something some little thing for school and it really had a voice right and it had his voice right. and it was he's a 10 year old boy so it was slightly obnoxious but i'm like <laughs> there's a voice here That's like this is amazing That's that it like really leaps off the page and it sounds like you right. and like I don't know if I agree with the point you're making, but I love the way that you've constructed it. I was right. and and I was like, I don't know how you did that, or how I can say here's where it becomes voicey.
1: But I think you know what I mean? it is 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 a um there's a the, the various kind of blockades people put between them and the writing are gone. Like when someone sits down to write, if they're self-conscious, they'll use a high register. Or if they want to impress someone, they'll say something which isn't quite true, but in a certain form. And there's a, Or they'll use language which is shop-worn, old language of adverts, bad movies, sentimental cards. All the, if you remove all that, then you have something. Mm. And it's just that some people remove it very naturally. They don't even think about all these various constructions well, that can be put on writing. I mean, this kids is... Kids particularly.
0: Y- this is the, the core of it. Finding the right word, right, is the is right. the core of it,
1: right. And sometimes it can be incredibly important. Like in political arguments, you know, you can say, "So and so is the accuser," that's one thing. But if you call them the victim, then you're in a whole other moral argument almost immediately. No, versus survivor, right. So th- these things are not um, uh, neutral. It's incredibly important which word you choose, how you choose it, and to be aware of all the ramifications which come with that word.
0: Well, sure. And to use a word that borrows too much from another language, takes you away, are are all the other words Latin-based or, you know, traditional English. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I find myself almost taking out each word word and going is this the right word can I have another word okay that one seems fine what about this one right and right.
1: like so then imagine to me thinking of hip hop is doing all of what we've just been talking about mm. and then also making it rhyme right. and then also doing it like 20 right. syllables right. a line and then also having an incredible beat behind you and making people want to dance it, to me that's it's like opera in, in that it's a total art form using so many different skills simultaneously
0: I mean we've seen hip hop go from quite often external right? right the the ghetto reporter thing right. to almost always i i i yes and and, it, and it's a fake eye usually right. but like many
1: eyes multiple eyes
0: right that it's like it's it's almost entirely i did this i did that
1: or oh, in, in a case with someone like kendrick it's become a fully established like a uh... World, you could talk about Kendrick world in which there are multiple voices operating and all kinds of different perspectives, personal, social, ghetto reporter, historian. and th- That's a uh, kind of new scale. It's like 15 rappers in one man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you like Kanye?
1: I do. I love Kanye. M- matter of constant argument in our house. Um I husband do. doesn't like him? No. I-, I, to- I totally understand all objections to Kanye as a person... Are they as an NC but I I was talking to my friend Dev Hines, do you know that guy, Blood Orange? <laughs> yeah, I do. And we were talking about uh I mean I, I really am so uninterested in the Kanye as as phenomenon and his wife and all that I couldn't right. care less. But if you just talk about the albums, it's an unbroken run of masterpieces.
0: It is. So really, that's all I'm really concerned is. with. It really is.
1: Everything else about him, I can't explain. I can't explain any of his public utterances, his politics, his attitudes to women. I don't understand any of it. But if you're talking about those albums, there's nothing like it in popular music. I, I think It's unprecedented. You have to talk about Stevie Wonder to find someone it's, no, it's with like, that many... It's
0: like Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon. Right. About, so, like The first five albums are extraordinary.
1: But they're all extraordinary. Even the ones where I used to think, oh, I'm not sure, and they're, they're all extraordinary. So... I think you could talk about Idiot Savant but I don't think that's it. I think he's a man with an extraordinary genius in this area and I I don't understand why that isn't enough. I don't need people to be upstanding citizens as well as as artistic geniuses. I don't care. I don't ask that of Picasso. I'm I don't I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, those are I, I would go to the map for those albums. Anybody who loves rap would sees their greatness and the rest of it is the rest of it. It doesn't It doesn't bother me really.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the last album I loved a lot, um, but the experimenting or tweaking the songs after they were released thing became very strange to me because I loved the songs in a certain way, and usually the tweaks would make me like them less.
1: Yes, I. It's an excess of energy. I mean, it's also the medium to be allowed to to be able to tweak in that way. I I think there's many a novelist who would like to take the book back off the shelf and do another edit, another run-through. Of course. Um, I I think it's a mistake. I I think, in the end, the album you create is the album you create, and and I want to spend time in there. But to me, the last one is um, completely sublime and extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. Uh, So... And and I suppose I experienced it, like, if if you saw the Arthur Jaffa show, did you see that? Which one? Arthur Jaffa, the artist, he used Ultralight Beam in various parts of that show. And I was listening to the album while also seeing Kerry Marshall or Lynette Yadimboroki. It seemed to me all of this, uh, a certain moment of kind of sublime black excellence, to use Jay-Z's phrase. Yeah. And I just thought it was a wonderful moment anyway it feels a long way away now
0: i mean you talk about that i mean i think about television it's extraordinary moment for black television
1: right
0: you probably don't i was also
1: watching insecure around the same time as well Well, yeah
0: well i mean there's only like 10 great shows starring black people you know many created by black people it's a really extraordinary
1: moment if you compare it to our childhood it's unbelievable
0: Uh. (laughs)
1: it's really unbelievable (laughs) It's a great time.
0: Um, And you write about Get Out in your new book.
1: Yes. Yeah. I I had some interest in Jordan before because I'd gone to see him and, uh, uh, well, Key and Peel in L.A. Um, I loved loved the movie and I loved writing about it. It was really enjoyable. And and Jordan is amazing to me. it's,
0: It's just an extraordinary just metaphor and just discussion of, like, race and this...
1: I know it's so strange now that it barely feels like a movie anymore. I, I, I actually can't really imagine watching it again. It's it's become so embedded in the yeah. culture that it's like a mon- <laughs> monument it's that like you the... walk around and admire. But yeah. but that's incredible that that should be true.
0: It's like the Matrix, right? Just subsumed yeah. into a, the collective memory. It's a memory, really like, incredible thing. Even if you haven't seen Get Out of well, The Sunken Place, like
1: well, right, right, you
0: know what that means.
1: And it's it's amazing news for everybody else because what it proves is that you don't. That movie did not cost a lot of money. Mm. Um, you just need ideas. And comedy's always been like that. Comic Comedy movies are, cost little and make enormous money. But Jordan has all the gifts. I mean, so funny, so smart, so much imagination. So I, it's just the beginning, I'm sure, for him. Um,
0: dance lessons for writers. Yes. What do we as writers learn from Prince and... Michael Jackson.
1: Um, well, when I was writing about it, uh, I have—I guess—I have a long time fixation on Jackson. For I don't know. I was born in 1975. That's just what happened. If you were b- born then, hell yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and like all kids of my generation, I, I learned those dances and loved to do them. And um, but I—did you I'm guys f- get the cartoon over there? Yeah, we got every. We got everything. Oh god, that <laughs> but, was the um, best. But I'm a far bigger. Prince fan, you know, in terms of yes. the, the music and the man and the art. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that when I had children, I showed them these Jackson videos. The, I was interested in the legibility of Michael Jackson. In order to be that famous, that successful, that remembered, there's something um, that has to be completely open and readable in you, you know, in all your movements. And Michael Jackson is that kind of dancer. He is a popular artist of the first order um, and I, I don't, I never uh, sneer at popular art. I've always loved it my whole life. But but Prince is an example of something other. You no, know? somebody who is, even though he's in full view, um, and j- just as famous as Jackson, probably, um, is somehow hidden. You know, not everything is I- exposed to you. Um, both the music and the dancing feel like a strange secret that you and he know. And so whenever you go to a Prince concert, as I did maybe twelve times, you mm. could be in a stadium and you'd be like, who are all these other? Mm. (laughs) who the fuck are these people it's meant Mm. to be just you and me Mm. having this moment then you realize that this very intimate experience you've had has been shared by millions jackson was never like that jackson's like having a coca-cola you know that everybody on the planet is having one
0: (laughs) (laughs) no that's true that's true it did feel like this intimate connection with prince and that went back from
1: always uh, it never went I, i think
0: I mean, I was too young to really know what, like, sexuality was when Purple Rain came out, but we had a sense of it. And I remember feeling like, my sister is way too much into this album. (laughs) Like, I love this album, but she loves it on a different level. Like, what's going on there?
1: I, I mean, all the teenage girls I knew were obsessed with him. It was an offering of a kind of sexuality you couldn't find anywhere else, you know, that was interested in you, but also on your side, you know. Yeah. It was likely to do... Your mascara, and then do his mascara, and then you both go out on the town. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a beautiful vision in
0: 1987. <laughs> um, I always thought I, women wanted, you know, like tough guys, not like well, maybe they thought so together. too. But he,
1: he brought he brought some news. He brought <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he
0: brought some news. Um, can you do things as a writer now that you couldn't do before, like say when you were doing White Teeth?
1: Um Oh, that's a good c- question. Uh I, th- I think my flow's a little better. I'm 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 much less eager to please and that frees you up in, in different ways, you know? Be a little bit braver, a little bit bolder sometimes. Um but then conversely there are things I did I think when I was young that I can't do anymore. Uh like so you lose stuff too. Like what? Um, I think I wrote, I'm not, I haven't read that book in so long, but my memory of it is that it's funny. It's really, it's funny. And part of its funniness is treating everybody like more or less a joke, you know, Mm. and I can't do that anymore. Mm. Life gets too hard (laughs) Mm. and too painful Mm. and you can't, I can't laugh. I really admire lifelong satirists and how they keep it up. But, um, the objects of laughter in white teeth, um, to me would not not be funny i wouldn't be able to laugh at them in the same way or resist from saying well yes i know she's ridiculous but what about this mm. you know you start wanting to make it make more of a case for people and and to and to make them human and the joke relies on them not being too human you know
0: when you talk about being braver what do you mean
1: um you know when you're young you, your sense of yourself is important you're trying to convey something or pitch something to other people, lovers, friends, or public if you have one, um, I, as you get older, as all people will tell you, it becomes less important, you know? You just want to uh, live in truth and feel truth and um, and be honest even if it's, uh, if, it, if it doesn't look so pretty, you know? I think that can make you braver. There's nothing more anxious than a, than a 23-year-old girl, you know, in a certain sense. She's so... Worried about everything, what everyone thinks about her, what she can say. Uh, older women, if you see a group of like yeah. black women in their 60s on holiday together, they couldn't give a shit about anything. Yeah. It's real freedom. I see it in my mother. She's just, she's way beyond anything like that. Yeah. She couldn't care what you think, what anybody thinks. She's just out for fun now. And I think it does make you bold.
0: So, what do you, I mean, I understand where you're talking about risk in a nonfiction context, right. but in a fictional context where you make up the game. What, Ab- absolutely.
1: What... And novels are always like that. That's a really good point. You make up the game. There's something uh, annoying about novels for that reason. I always feel annoyed when I'm reading a novel because the whole thing's been set up. Yeah. And it's all rigged.
0: But And, and I don't mean that in any negative way. Uh, Native Son comes to mind as an extremely brave right. book. Right. Um, so what is that? mean for a novelist
1: i think of something like giovanni's room this is a really good example uh, uh, baldwin when he wrote that book he could have gone many different ways and pleased many more people you know he could have written uh, a kind of black power afrocentric novel and pleased a lot of people he could have written a gay novel and pleased less people but a particular audience mm. he could have written another country again and got those white liberals on board instead he wrote a book almost calculated to annoy every single person he knew. (laughs) Everyone in his constituency, his publishers, his gay friends, his white friends, his black friends, everybody Mm. hated that book and told him not to publish it, warned him not to publish it. Now it's Beloved, you know. But people often forget um, how hard it is to get to Beloved, you know. That book was despised and he was despised. It took enormous guts to write that book exactly because he had no hope of it being welcomed. That's the kind of risk you take. And mm. even in that case, people often forget, I realize sometimes when I'm talking about it with people, people forget the narrator is a white guy.
2: Mm.
1: It's Baldwin saying, "I, I, I," but it's a white guy in that novel. He put himself in the opposite position and tried to imagine what that was like. And nobody wanted to read that book either. Now they read it. So those kind of risks that are um, against the grain of the political moment, against even the advice of friends, but have an urgency in them. He needed to write that book. He wanted to imagine what it was like to be a white, gay, American guy in Paris. He was interested in that perspective. He was interested in the perspective of everybody else in that novel. Um, but he wanted to be in all those places against everybody's um, better advice. And I'm so grateful that book exists because it's an example of of what you can do when you don't give a fuck as the rapper.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so so part of it, you're talking about aesthetic risks. Aesthetic
1: right? risks. Sometimes they're political. They're all different kinds. They can be about uh, voice, style, um character they can be many different kinds but if there isn't something new in a novel i remember reading Kurt here saying this somewhere as a young man in some journal um he was saying it to paul oster um slightly fur- furtively because he doesn't know if oster will agree but he says you know maybe i'm a snob but as far as i'm concerned if there isn't something new in a novel at some level could be structural could be stylistic could be, then why have you written it mm. and i think that's fair enough that's it's a high standard, but I don't see any other one you can apply.
0: Um, So if I'm 25, 30, trying to get better as a novelist, maybe I wrote one, but um, give me, what do you want me to read?
1: Um,
0: What do I want? What do you want me to read to get better as a, as a writer? I
1: think the main thing is not to limit yourself in your reading, to read everything. That was the thing my mother um, impressed on, on me. And it, it was such good advice, even though I kind of resisted it at the time. You know, at various points when I was a kid, I either wanted to—I had moments of assimilation where I wanted to read all English literature because I wanted to be, you know, English like everybody else and normal like any other kid wants to be normal. I had other times of wanting to entirely read Black American writing and want to read anything else, you don't want to hear about anything else. Um, my mother was always insistent on the idea that, um, which she t- took from Baldwin, as Baldwin's argument that the world is yours. Baldwin said, "You know, uh, all of black writing is mine, but bark is also mine. If I'm a human, then all culture made by all humans is mine, mine to take, mine to ingest, and mine to use." That was my mother's principle, and sometimes I thought it was apolitical or strange, or but but I think she was right, and it was a very good habit that she brought to me because in our shelves there was uh, something of everything, you know, and even writers who we personally she found painful, like she had a lot of Naipaul and for a Jamaican, having Naipaul on your shelves is not easy because <laughs> those, there's yes, a lot in Nightpool. those books which is directly offensive and cruel but my mother's opinion was this is a Caribbean writer, we are Caribbean, he's one of the great Caribbean writers, you're going to read him and if you find something in there that you don't approve of or that is offensive um, and there is plenty, uh, you're strong. Mm. Read it, move on to the next page.
0: Okay, so... Can you give advice for younger folks?
1: Um, writing the, f- the first advice is is do you really want to do this in terms of as a life practice? Because the, one of the main parts of writing is the willingness to be alone for most of the day. Mm. For almost all of the day. Yeah. And I just don't think that suits a lot of people. Understandably. Because it's really boring. And you can have the same gifts, like I think of my, both my brothers. I would say we all have exactly the same gift, which at root is imitation. We can do voices, we can copy sounds and sing like other people or rap like other people. It's just imitation. We're like imitators. It's the same gift, if that's what you want to call it, but we've put it to different uses. My brother likes people and company, so he's a stand-up and actor. He works with people that's what he does all day long. My little brother is a rapper. He wants to be around people. He writes songs. He he's collaborative. I want to be alone a lot of the time, and what I've and the art I've chosen is is for that. And so when I ever I speaking to young writers, speaking to my students, that's the first question I ask: Is this what you want to do all day? To be alone. To be alone and and fall back on yourself without interruption for six eight hours a day because a lot of people don't. If the answer is yes to that part. Um, then to me it is about uh, taking in culture, art, books, music, film, everything, and, of course, living as much as you can, as honestly as you can outside of uh, collective movements, dogma, shared ideas, just trying to live your own life.
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast Radical for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, <clears throat> you read Zora Neale Hurston as a younger person talking about Black women as yeah. the mule of the world, yeah, and it had a negative. Devastating, not devastating, but negative experience, negative impact on you. What because, was that experience? Because
1: I knew it was true. Looking at the history of my family, I knew it was true, but I didn't. I I wanted to break it, and I knew my mother wanted to break it for me. You know. Um. It, it it's different now because I I don't fear it anymore. But my brother told me I didn't go on this trip, but they all went back to Jamaica last year. I couldn't go. And my mum was insistent on taking my brother and his kids uh, to see where she grew up, and she was trying to find it. My, my family are real country people, so they got to the village and they started trying to get through the bush, and everyone was getting tired and hot and saying, Mum, you know, I don't think we're going to find it. It was a long time ago. And, and she was completely insistent. They're going through the literal bush, and then they found this uh, broken-down shack. It's a shack. And my mother said, this is the place. Wow. And my brother... It to me, And I knew the stories like, you know, eight kids in a bed and and no parents because parents left for England, you know, so you're being brought up by a grandmother. Um, but my brother said when he saw it, he was it was really it, it's a lot to take on. You know, you, you have to do a lot of forgiveness because you realize, however um, harsh your own mother has been. There was a reason, you know, she was trying to trying to get away from something, try to change something. <clears throat> it wasn't easy. It's not easy to be. Uh, a fatherless child and a motherless child, which is uh, a long history in Jamaica, at least, you know, in my family. Going back a long way, there's all these motherless and fatherless children. So I guess when I was a kid, I I wanted to respect that past, but I didn't want to be contained by it. You know, I was scared of it to a certain degree. And when Zora said that thing, I thought, yes, that's been true of the women in my family going back generations, but I, it's not going to be true of me, you know. And it already wasn't true of my mother because she was... Uh, so determined um, but i was scared of it uh, and so i ran from it and then when i returned to it i just realized that it was a great source of strength you know of course it's so obvious now but but um suffering it's not something to be run away from and and communities who um have experienced great amounts of suffering um have all this beauty all this power that I just had to tap into you know and that's what Zora did her writing is is full of all that history it doesn't run from it doesn't shy from it but it's also flowering in glory and beauty and music and uh, so it, it's just a double gift you know every mm. kid feels that it's like are you, in any circumstance I'm sure they, you are can tell me about the pain you can tell me about all the pain and you want to get out from under it but then you can't you you come back you come back and see um, also what a glorious history it, it is.
0: I, I mean, I know you, but I don't know your entire life. Right. H- have you entirely escaped it?
1: Um, but I didn't want to. I was writing recently about a photographer, Deanna Lawson, a wonderful um, African-American photographer from Rochester who takes pictures of diaspora folk uh, all over the world, Jamaica, Haiti, Bronxville, Yonkers, wherever she is, she takes these extraordinary pictures, usually in their living rooms. Often they're undressed, these people. One of them's, in fact, on the cover of one of Dev's albums. Um, And because of the nature of Diaspora, a lot of these pictures are pictures of poverty one way or another, because the Diaspora is deeply embedded in poverty all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's one of our distinguishing characteristics for various obvious historical social reasons. So when you're looking at these photos, which are incredibly beautiful, and they really are of kings and queens, you know, in these debased circumstances, if you were to run from it, uh, what are you running from? Of course, everyone wants to run from poverty. But do you want to run from blackness simultaneously? No. Mm. So that's that's the part I find problematic. You know, to say you've escaped is say you've escaped your people, your community, your background. You don't. That's not something I want to escape. Do you want to untie the binds between a community and poverty? Of course, you know, you want that to be historically no longer true. Um, but it's been a long time coming. Mm. And I mean, one of the things I found when I came to America, which is completely different from an African American perspective, I know, but I'd never come across such a large black middle class. I didn't know that that existed, you right. know,
2: Right.
1: And to me in America, that was the revelation to me that, oh, that there's something in between being, you know, dirt poor as, as my mother's family was. And then, you know, getting by when you get to the second country, there's, there's a whole history here. Yeah. Um, which I just was not familiar with, and, and that to me, th- I had a lot of delight in that, you know. Though I know it's completely different from the perspective, you know, of someone like Tarnahesi, who's lived here all his life, for generations here. But for me, coming here, the fact of Tarnahesi, yeah. for example, yeah. was amazing. Yeah, that there were, you know, black intellectuals, black artists in every corner doing extraordinary work. Um, all those people existed in England, but it's hard to breakthrough you know the country is resistant to the idea and to be here and to feel it has at least some history uh that was important to me And i think for all black children in europe america is it is that place you know where the music came from where the books come from where the films come from you look that way so to be here for me was a great kind of rejuvenation when did you come here what year uh i came first uh just after 2001 I came to do the novel first, White Teeth in 2000, on a long book tour. And then I was in and out from kind of oh, 2002 onwards. It's inter-
0: you describe America purely with within this context of what you were just saying. Right. Purely as like so inspiring because I right. meet figuratively all these amazing black people right. and I see what's possible. Um, and that is real.
1: Yeah. But then it's simultaneously a nightmare.
0: Yeah. And yeah. especially since oh one. Yeah. There's been so much. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and it, it does that...
1: But that's it. America is this extraordinary mixed reality. It always has been. From the very seeds of it, the ideas of democracy and slavery happen in a coeval manner. They happen together. It's, it's the kind of thing which will drive you out of your mind. And there's no small proportion of black artists, black intellectuals in this country who have been driven literally out of their minds. <laughs> I always think of Nina Simone. Like yeah. Nina Simone was, I believe, driven mad by America, mentally ill by living in this country. Um, so I, I, I see that side every day. And, and yet still there is the fact of Nina Simone.
0: And someone like Nina and others who get to a, a crossroad where you can speak your truth or have a career, but right. you can't have both. No. And, and especially when you are an artist some level of activist parent, you can't no. choose just close no. your eyes. Her
1: life her life was um, impossible, and yet she, she tried to live it, you know? She tried to be a good mother. She tried to be an artist. She tried to be an activist. She tried to find somewhere to live where she could breathe. She went to Liberia. She tried everything, but this country would not, I mean, they would not and let she, her live.
0: And she was dealing with domestic violence they before that was a term. No. She was bipolar before that right. was a term.
1: It's... um. It, it was an impossible life, and yet, you know, there's this incredible body of work. So, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't downplay the horror here, but I just am aware, from my perspective, that I, I experienced a lot of joy being here, just because it was so new to me.
0: Nina, to me, Nina Simone, to me, is the greatest singer ever.
1: Yes, this me and my this husband agree on. How there's she no, makes there's no gap. Me feel. Yeah.
0: Right? I mean, the depth of what she's able to make me feel is so powerful.
1: No, she's incredible. And, and uh, Nick is the biggest Nina fan ever. I always loved Nina, but I didn't know her the way he knows her. And um, so since we've been married, I have I now f- think I've heard every single thing she ever recorded. And, uh, and also the way it weaves into Kanye's work is so wonderful. It comes back over and over and over. He uses her so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he is some kind of almost funhouse mirror version of it in that his life is impossible. But I mean, he's made it impossible in various <laughs> yeah. ways himself. Yeah. But I see what he's aligning to, this sense of an impossible identity, this daily struggle, even though, and I can see why outrageous people, when he uses those Nina tracks, she's talking about struggle and he's talking about, you know, they won't <laughs> let me wear jeggings in wherever, you know, it's absurd. <laughs> but structurally, it works musically. I understand the kind of connection he makes. Um, but yes, her voice, maybe for me, uh, Billie Holiday slightly slightly edges her out, but that's entirely personal. D- it's it, just it something is. about Billie does it, it, it for me. And, and
0: Billie has that same, like, will slice through your heart. It's incredible. To
1: like... it's incredible. And I, I, when I was thinking about all this advice about writing, um, one of the main ones, like when I wanted to sing, one of the things which stopped me singing definitively were singers like that. I just thought... On the same principle, if you can't make it new, why would you want to be just a, a club singer with a nice voice doing impersonations of great artists? I couldn't stand it. So I, I think when you're choosing an art form, you're choosing the one that you think you have, a, you can exist in that you have. A, there's a space for you. Oh my God, you can maybe do a little thing which is new.
0: If you tell that to young writers, they'll all leave.
1: I don't know, man, uh, you have to have that, you have to aim high. Like, I love to sing, but if you can't sing, like, if you're uh, not an artist, why bother? I, I
0: mean, if, if you're <laughs> if you're a writer, you will always be number two. You can't get above Shakespeare. No, no, no. There's no chance. But,
1: but you can make your little, it, it's like a, I've had a beautiful metaphor for it recently from some writer who I now can't remember, a dead writer, an old writer, but about the idea of writing being a massive lake. Yeah. into which these tributaries feed. Yeah. And the tributaries are everywhere and you can be one of these tiny little tributaries feeding this lake called literature. Yeah, oh sure. And I I always found that much more possible than music where I just personally was overwhelmed by genius. But, I don't feel that in even, writing for some reason. But I even feel, as a
0: black writer you'll always be behind a visible man.
1: Yeah, there's no but I feel fine about I like being part of that lake. Okay. I don't know why in music I couldn't believe in the lake in music all i could see was stevie wonder and that just depressed the hell out of me. <laughs> and i
0: can't compete with <laughs> no, that no so point. don't bother singing there's no point he's not even i mean he, that...
1: but there should be actually someone else who could make a very good argument for the idea of the amateur the joy of amateurism the joy of just participating in art because it's beautiful and pleasurable i think that's definitely true too yeah
0: i mean what yeah, is more what, there's nothing fun. wrong with that
1: and actually, recently in my 40s, I've begun singing a little bit just because nice. I really didn't sing for 20 years and remembering, well, this, it's not just about, you know, making your place. There's also just the joy of of the practice what of playing an instrument of singing. Of what kind like of
0: that. singer are you?
1: Oh, uh, i just an impersonator. That, yeah, I'm an impersonator. <laughs> I can do various people.
0: Like what? Can you do um, Billy?
1: I can do a good Ella. I'm not bad at Billy. Um L- Give me a Billy. No, I'm not seeing anything on this radio Give me show. an no, Ella. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> just was a just, bar. No way. But um,
0: <laughs> that's
1: that's what I used to do. I did a good Sinatra when I was a teenager for some reason. I used to oh do a my. lot of Sinatra. So crooning, I guess, is what I do. Bad yeah. crooning. Yeah.
0: But no, I mean, it's like sometimes I feel like, oh, we cheated the whole game because we like make it by writing. I just sit there. Picking words and moving them around. What, and what like, an
1: incredible privilege! Yes, like, that's the, you, yes, it's incredible. Look,
0: yes. Now that we don't have to do actual—I mean, it's hard, but there is there no, are way, way way harder lots of work.
1: Um, I mean, my mother just retired after thirty-five years of social work and child therapy, and uh, that's work. Yeah, yeah, it's work that that um, kind of emotionally. Breaks you down over the years, you know. You're yeah. dealing with other people's pain directly—not imaginary people, real people every day. Um, no, I, I, um, I do find writing hard, but I, but I am regularly blissed out at the idea that it's my, it's my practice. You know that I that I get to do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think about all the history that you know. Who do you see as? sort of kindred spirit like do you see yourself in billy or billy holiday or zora or um you know i don't know who marcus garvey i don't know who
1: i it's not it's people who inspired you there's something and i'm so many black women writers will say exactly the same thing but something in zora the the she's quite ornery you know she's very uh perverse and bad-tempered a lot of the time which amuses me. She's not easy. That's what you would say about her. She's not an easy person. And I kind of like that about her. Tony Morrison also not an easy person. I like I like the idea of a, a black woman who who stands in her own space and doesn't is not always seeking approval from everybody, you know. When I read Tony Morrison interviews these days, I just feel there's someone who completed her tasks. Like if you're talking about success, to me, that's what it really means. Not winning a Nobel Prize, although I'm sure that's wonderful, And but she wrote the books she wanted to write. She completed them. They were great. She decided on what, her project. She finished it. And she was not distracted by anybody or anything. And to me, that is uh, success, you know?
0: You mentioned that a couple of times, this notion of not needing external approval and just, just... Doing what you want to do. That's the big freedom for you. you.
1: I think that because in my, I grew up in a family of hams. You know, we we're always looking for <laughs> approval, singing, dancing, acting, trying to get some applause. Um, and I think, I've talked to my brother recently, um, he come off a long stand up tour and now he's in some TV show. And, uh, I, I I am aware of uh, of our childhood preoccupation with applause, and I'm also aware at our age now that that it's just not about that anymore. And that p- p- part of getting uh, mentally healthy for both me and my brothers is realizing that uh, there's no amount of clapping that is going to make you feel like a happy person. That's not going that's not going to work. I think all stand ups work that out in the end, right? Like Chris Rock, Chappelle, like they—you're not skipping in the bushes because everybody clapped for you. It doesn't—I don't think that works in the end. I think you need to find a firmer basis for your happiness than that.
0: For, do you? I
1: think so. And I—I think personally. I—I mean. I think so, and i think it's in in relations with others. Like, uh, I mean, obvious examples: your children, your partner. But it's—it's, it's, you know, that silly line from—oh God. Yeah can't believe I'm going to quote this, but from It's a Wonderful Life where it says no man is a failure who has friends. This is the bottom line, you know. Genuine relations with other human beings before you die, that's that's success. And and it's lovely to do good work and, and feel rewarded for it, but strangers applauding you, it, to me it's it's like a cocaine or something. It feels good for a few hours and then... It really doesn't. <laughs>
0: Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Right. I mean it, it it is like cocaine in that it does jolt you up right. and you have an endless need for more. Um
1: but at a certain point you go beyond it. And the greatest artist, like I just watched that Chappelle oh, thing. God. And I can see with Chappelle that, you know, when a comedian starts out, even when Chappelle started out, it's the laughter you need. Yeah. So you need it every 20 seconds sometimes much less than that and it has to be continuous and there are various points in Chappelle's show and it happens to all great comedians really great where the laughter stops because he's not saying anything funny right he's telling you the history of black people in America right. which lasted I was cat it was like nine minutes or something of total silence in the end comedians they become contemptuous of laughter because if people are laughing everywhere you expect them to laugh. It's not funny to you anymore, well, you, and you start hating them for it as well.
0: Well, then you're a clown,
1: and you're a clown. And Chappelle is no clown. And I think what you, as you get older, what you really want to do is make yourself clear and say what you want to say. And those passages, in his stand up, the historical passages, the bit about Emmett Till, oh. to me, uh, were sublime. I don't know if you call them comedy. Whatever you call that, yeah. is is great, and it his, makes him great.
0: His Bill Cosby joke. <laughs> from the which was like a year ago, is oh, so amazing. Right, and to retell it would take about twenty minutes. Right, you know it starts in this place you don't even see it right. coming that it's gonna, and it's so well constructed and it's so beautiful. It's extraordinary. And,
1: I think at that point and with rock two, you're dealing with something like West African storytelling. Actually, they're like griots; they're telling very long. Tales that the whole village is coming to yeah. listen to, and it, it's an ancient tradition, and it, it's it's awesome to see.
0: I mean, I feel, I feel Chappelle has has, and at one time this would have been sacrilegious, but I feel like Chappelle has long gone past rock in terms of being able to no do stand up. Um, <laughs>
1: just, just, no I
0: mean, it's it's just so. It's, it's different. Just, it's, it's so Chris Rock well,
1: still, he'll make you cry with laughter. But and Dave, that's a very important part of comedy. You shouldn't forget that part. It, no,
0: it is. Dave is talking so much about himself. And Chris talks about, in Chris's new one, he talks about himself and it's very powerful.
1: Yeah, there's a divorce and, tour going on. Oh, isn't there? yes. I heard about that. All
0: the divorce stuff is <laughs> very painful. And it's like you're not laughing for a good 10 minutes.
1: Right. But, ah,
0: Chappelle. I mean, it's become so special the work that he's when it's working. It's, when it's amazing. Working.
1: I think the good thing is, like, when, whenever you have great artists like Kanye and Kendrick working simultaneously, it's fun for everybody. Yeah, the competition is healthy and interesting. And I never, I'm always saying to my kids, they always want to know who's better. Like, whatever we're doing for watching a musical, if we're listening yeah. to, it, who's better? Is it him or her? They want because I guess they hear me and Nick constantly giving these bloody judgments yeah. of various books, movies, so they've become like little critics in their mind. But when they put it so boldly, the way children do, I'm ashamed of it. You know, I'm ashamed of the instincts. So I always say, no, no, it's not about, is Judy Garland better than Barbra Streisand? These are different ways of being in the world, and that's truly how I feel most of the time. That you, When you're invested in an artist, you're in the stream of their style, of their way of being, and to be with rock is completely different than being with Chappelle. It's a different feeling both personally, if you've met them both, and also if you're listening to them do stand-up. It's a different way of being, and you just have to be grateful for the variety and the quality of these different demonstrations. There
0: was a time when we thought about Chappelle's work ethic, like, what's up with that guy? He hasn't done anything in ages, and now he's done four hours in, like, two years— It's extraordinary. Yeah,
1: It's extraordinary. And you know how hard it is to work up that material and deliver it at that level. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a very happy story because I, there were maybe moments where you thought America was about to drive Chappelle mad the way it drove Enema, but yeah. no.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he talked about that. I talked to him after he came back from South Africa and he, I'm like, what happened? And, you know, he's all twisted up and, like, he doesn't want to talk about yeah. it. But he's like, you've seen this before. Like, when Martin Lawrence got it, a big it, it check and he happens. freaked out. When Mariah Carey got a big check and freaked out. Like, do you not see the pattern? But
1: do you talk about that on this show, that, what success means and how it isn't always the most wonderful thing that happened to a person?
0: You know, we have <sighs> not – We I have tried to discuss success as a broad – thing right it's not about money it's not about awards Um, you know Nikki Giovanni was the third guest I had not traditionally successful but extraordinarily successful Um, but no I I know honestly I have not gotten to the pitfalls of success or whatever or where it's not working or I mean is that a big no, I just think it's, it's very an...
1: interesting. The Chappelle case is very interesting because it, it's so anti-American in spirit, right? Because yeah. the American principle is more money, better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but more money, more problems, which is, is an interesting kind of moral thread in hip-hop, um, which I love about hip-hop. And it's very rarely, you know, when you're hearing criticism of hip-hop, nobody ever mentions that. the Hip-hop is full of the discussion of the prob- problematic of money. What do you do with it? Who do you give it to? Does your mama need it? Does your whole family need it? How big is your crew? What does it mean when you have does it? You your, have to move out together. Does that
0: girl you like right. need it? Right.
1: It's always about that in a way that the rest of American culture is pretty silent on the topic of what money mm. is meant to mean. And mm. So when Ch- Chappelle checked out, he's absolutely right. It's a long tradition of people asking themselves, what does the check mean in relation to the work? And the answer is always that the check is absurd. There is no um, price tag for, uh, you know to a nightingale, it can be worth one dollar. It could be worth forty million dollars. It doesn't. The money is is insane when it's attached to art. It doesn't actually make any sense. Can't make any sense if it's a it's a reasonable fee. One can rationalize it, you know, and think of hours done and work done.
0: I mean, one thing for me as a writer is that I always took all my opportunities super seriously. Right. And out of the group of like New York hip hop writers who came in in the early nineties. I was sort of, like, considered, like, the nerd. Like, he always turns his stories in on time. (laughs) He doesn't turn them in, like, a thousand words over the limit. Like, he knows the limit. He knows the deadline. Like, he's such a nerd, right? right? We're rock stars. We show up a week late or two weeks late. I'm like, guys, you can't make a career out of showing up late all the time. But I didn't think that opportunity would just abound especially for a black artist right. and to see dave walk away from forty, fifty million dollars with chappelle's show right. like hurt me because like how many times in life does a black artist get that sort of opportunity and he had that faith in himself and he could not have seen the coming of no. netflix no but he was able to make that up th- and then some and it's amazing
1: i think most of us have never been brave enough to do it but when people do things like that there was a case in um, England of a kind of proto-anarchist punk band who burnt a million pounds (laughs) do you remember in the 90s yeah (laughs) burnt a million pounds and filmed it and they came to regret it very much because of course later on you could do with a million pounds it would just about buy you a house in London maybe but what those kind of acts do for the rest of us is release from us from the idea that money is at all times everything. It's an incredible act, public act, to do because it puts into seeds in everybody's mind the idea that money can be separated from life. It doesn't have to rule every corner of life, decide every decision you make, control everything you do. That's what I thought of Chappelle, that even though it, I know it seems insane, it was an act of freedom, symbolic yeah. freedom. Yeah. And that... Freedom is passed on to all the people who witness it. Even the ones who say, you're crazy, are you kidding? I'm suffering from pay pay. You just turned back 50 million. But even those people, I think there's a little seed of joy at the idea that someone has released themselves from this bind that we all seem tied by day and night. It's
0: it's almost like the, the, the old apple commercial right the 1984 apple like like there's one woman who's right. got the hammer right. who's attacking big brother <laughs> right. but the rest of us who's still sitting yeah,
1: there we're just sitting there and so uh you know acts like that will always be accused of being publicity stunts or self-regarding or but to me it's just like little uh adverts for freedom almost like imagine some other life imagine another world no
0: i would i i would love the courage to walk away from that kind of... I feel like as I get older, I have less courage yeah, to walk away from a nice opportunity. Right. But the models of
1: courage, sometimes they stay... You can't forget them. Like if you hear Muhammad Ali saying, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger. Yeah. That, you never forget it. Yeah. That moment of courage lasts through the last centuries. Because he gave up almost everything for nothing. Apart from to make... Principled stand. These things always seem absurd at the moment, but they, they radiate.
0: I know you said you don't have a policy with Nigga for your children, right? But do you have it for yourself? Do you yeah, say but it to colloquially? Me, to me, it's
1: not. Um to me, it's not complicated. There are two different words. I know that maybe people roll their eyes at it, but there is yeah. one spelt with an E-R and there's one spelt with an A, which is a yeah. preserve of hip hop, which means never ignorant, getting goals accomplished, or Kendrick's <laughs> definition, if you prefer it, and it has West African roots. So I, I don't, I don't have any complication between those two words yeah. in my mind. Yeah. So, so, so do you just say non...
0: do you say nigga? Like, would you say yeah?
1: That's but in my Britain, nigga. no, no black relative of mine, no black friend would ever. You, you don't refer to yourself. You might say cuz, blood, bruv, West Indian terms, but no one in my entire youth ever said to me, hey, niggas, that never happened. <laughs> it's just not a British, black right. British phrase. It doesn't, it doesn't Brits exist. Brits don't do that. Right, Brits don't do that. So for me, it's not natural, but I, yeah, I hear it every day in the street amongst people all the time. It doesn't, and people now say it to me, but I'm never I mean, bothered I have, by it.
0: I have experienced so much uh, love from black men, Through that word. Right. Black men don't say, I love you. No. Right? And I'm not talking about my father. My father was great at saying, I love you. But I'm talking about my peers and the avuncular uh, and paternal men in my life. They don't say, I love you. Right. But they might say, what's up, my nigga?" Right. And it's like, I can hear the love and I'm like, ah, it feels so good.
1: And it it seems to me to have intensified the past 20 years. Like, I remember Mm. in the 80s where it's still, because it was an endless problematic in the papers do you remember I mean, people constantly arguing about this still still it's still going on but um the the way that hip-hop it's as if you're reading you know 400 years of poetry certain words in it become radiant and that word has become more and more radiant as it gets used more and more times and more and more context (laughs) um so yeah but in a black british perspective it just i i I don't, I hear it a little bit in the grime now, funnily enough, you hear it more, but Mm. that's very recent.
0: Do you like Rick Ross?
1: Yeah, I do, I should.
0: I love Rick Ross.
1: I do, I can't help it, that's just, I have no reason, no defense, I just like listening.
0: Well, I mean, the music is incredible. Is it? His, I I mean, just like his beats. His beats. He's not a great rapper, but he's sufficient. He's sufficient. But he, I mean, he would be a great A&R. Right. To find like the great, the greatest beats. He's
1: just an amazing character makes me laugh. I like him. Are we Is okay? Is that your phone? Yeah, that's my phone. Yeah, yeah. It's it. It's off. Don't worry.
0: Wait, no. Okay, there's, you have this little tiny flip phone yeah. from like 96.
1: 99. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does it text? Uh, it does, but don't try to send me any pictures or emojis. Why do you have this little old phone? Uh, just it's the same. Just time. Just I think I'm an addictive person. I don't want to be addicted to a phone. I just I'm 42. I haven't got that much longer to live. I don't want to oh, spend 20 percent of that time looking at pictures on Instagram. I just I'm just not into it. You are so good. I know it's boring, but I'm not into it. Cutting yourself
0: off from the world, but and that's not not in, the world. not in a negative way. You're right. You're right. Not in a negative way. Well, well, but but Instagram, Twitter, these these are part of the world. I know,
1: but it's amazing how much you can catch up with just true. reading about it in the paper or true on your laptop for ten minutes at night. Yes, that's true. But um, but
0: you have resisted. I don't want to say it in a way that's going to put you off, but you sort of are not engaging in these things so that you can have time for the core thing that yeah. matters to it, you it, as an artist
1: but it's not it, it, it it's always defined because to be honest quite often when we're talking about this i'm talking to addict, addicts more or less yeah they kind of put construct the argument as if i have so much willpower and, it, it's the opposite it's that um i really am hungry for life uh, uh physical things experiences and uh, the the face of the person thumbing through yeah. instagram on the subway for two hours i just i I don't want, I'm not in it. I'm not into it. Yeah. I'm just not into it. Yeah. And I can't, that's it. But I, I feel like um, I'm not going to be alone much longer. I, f- I feel things changing.
0: People wanting more freedom from that mm-hmm. stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, so, if you bro- I'll still be here when you guys want when, when to
0: br- you as humans. Br- when you break <laughs> that seeking of approval from others, then you can disengage from social media because you're trying to get the approval of folks who you never see.
1: I, I really, I'm just like everyone. I want approval, but I want it. I want the real. I want it in reality. Yeah. I want it at dinner. <laughs> I like. I want it in person. I, I really want to. I want it for real. You know. How come? How come
0: children doesn't seem to be, or let me say, how come parenting doesn't seem to drag you off course as an artist?
1: I don't know. Maybe I'm not that good a parent. I mean, I, I just. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, I think Nick and I both come from backgrounds where uh, you have a very strong s- sense of the good enough parent, which is a kind of uh, it's a term from uh, an English, a psychotherapist. But our parenting, our parents were great and everything, but it wasn't like I wouldn't say it was overdone. You know, mm, <laughs> like mm. they had their own stuff going on. You have the sense for me. There's a definition Freud makes between. Acute misery, which is trauma, horror, abuse, all the rest of it, and just ordinary unhappiness. And in his mind, ordinary unhappiness is what everyone should be aiming for. And that's all I hope for with my children, just oh, the ordinary so unhappiness British. that I have and that everybody has. Ordinary unhappiness. But the American idea where you have to like, you're like a kind of part-time circus clown, yeah. chef, yeah. full-time entertainer. Yeah. Your children should never be bored. They should be delighted and doing incredible activities. every. I'm just not, I don't see that that's an important part of childhood i don't understand that
0: i feel so guilty they're not in an after-school program every need, afternoon and i'm like be... am i screwing no, 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 up no.
1: they just and also i saw that a norwegian writer naskar in the headline somewhere yesterday say you know misery might have a, its uses in childhood it made me a writer and i suppose everyone mm. who does stuff like this does think well what What is it that happy children go on to do exactly?
2: Mm. Do they
1: become bankers? I don't know what they do. I mean, good for them and everything. <laughs> but uh, a little bit of misery is not the worst thing that ever happened to somebody.
0: You know, I thought about that when I took my kids to the Black Smithsonian in, oh, yeah. in D.C. And my daughter, have you been?
1: No, I can't. How do you get a ticket? You have to book months ahead.
0: Oh, I can get you a
1: ticket. Oh, okay, cool.
0: But it, 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 was, it was amazing and and the bottom floor it's chronological it starts chronological right. and then it goes thematic as you get higher floors and the bottom floor of course is slavery and the and the coming here and uh it's harrowing and my daughter was 7 at the time and she cried a lot yeah and i don't want to sound too harsh but i was like good cuz i was deeply moved learning about the history of slavery as a kid and it shaped me to say, I have to do something purposeful. Right. I can't just do whatever. Right. I have to have, because I'm standing, I knew I'm standing on people's shoulders. Right. I would not be here if not for the sacrifices right. and deaths of other people. So now she's starting to see that lineage that she stands on. Right. Not just me and your grandfather, right. but like Harriet right. Tubman, Sojourner right. Truth, etc. Um,
1: but when is the right age? It is definitely the end of... Something like when you find out about the Nazis, Uh, Mm. I was about 11. I mean, I knew of of them kind of, you know, in England, you always know about them because they're part of your, Mm. but I didn't, I didn't know about the concentration camps, I guess I found out when I was 11. And I do remember that being the end of of something, the end of an idea I had about the world. It was permanently done. (laughs) And I I wept a lot and I was really uh, broken by it, you know, and the, the experience that was twinned with that was reading... Tony Morrison's *The Black Book*, which was a kind of mm. imagined three hundred year old scrapbook, a commonplace book yeah. kept by a, a black woman who would be about three hundred years old. So it's it's from slavery onwards, everything she would have kept, every souvenir. Um, and I that was the book which had the fo- famous photos in America, I suppose, but I'd never seen them of of uh, young black children on spits, um, spits, yeah, being roasted. Well. People oh, God, yeah. sit around eating oh, God, yeah. snacks. Yeah, um, and I was about twelve when I saw that, and that was that was the second time I was a certain vision of the world is is dies at that point. Mm. Basically, the world is benign,
0: yeah. and that
1: people are generally kind, and yeah. that war is an aberration and not. You know, you have to give give that up. And I, I am very torn now with my children. of when is the right age to bring that news? Yeah. I don't know, and I, I'm kind of impressed by my mother that she. She was so – and my father. They were so sure that that I was ready for it it was the right time because I find those decisions much harder to I th- make. I feel
0: like they tell us when the right time is right. Um, yeah, because, you know, how much information they're taking in. When Eric Garner was going on, my son came to me and he said, you know, what does I can't breathe mean? Right. And I started to explain it to him. He's like, well, I've seen the video. I was watching it over your shoulder. I didn't know he was oh, paying attention. And so now it's like, well, we have to have this conversation. And I don't want him to walk away, like, hating white people because I'm not sure he's old enough at that point to understand, uh, you know, the entirety of it. But everybody's equal, but everybody's not treated the same. And I think he got most of that.
1: But it's also slapdash. Like when I thought about having children before I had them, I imagined this stately procession of history lessons and discussion on race. And it's so random. Like it's just whatever occurs to me that day, and then something else, and then oh, by the way, Elvis Presley, and oh, Tupac, and Malcolm X, and just a random selection of names thrown at them. They're completely confused. (laughs)
0: Well, well I didn't realize that children's attention span <sighs> oh, is extremely short. You right. can talk to them like in each burst right. for like ten seconds. Right. So even if you ask me a big question, I have ten seconds <laughs> to give you <me> the <laughs> you're like, Okay, i you've lost oh, me, I'm oh. flitting off back to my toys.
1: Don't you have that experience with Martin Luther King Day that every year it comes around you? able to give a little more of the story so the first time when there were three it was just like he was just this wonderful man he believed the equality of all people now four years later it was out and by the way he was murdered did they tell you that in school <laughs> by a racist worse.
0: white man
1: it gets worse each year st- like it's not a celebration anymore it's just like a terrible day of misery right but yeah so that happens
0: we'll, se- right, we'll, right. we'll celebrate malcolm x day just make it easier
1: oh yeah we say hi it's discussion with him this year
0: Oh, my God. Oh my God. Yeah, so that started happening. And no, I mean, especially for the boy, right. I want him to know so that he, when he goes out in the world, he knows what he's encountering. Right. Not that the girl is not experiencing right. racism, but probably not risking her life walking around as early as he is.
1: No, it's completely different. I, it took me a long time to um, understand. that. I remember doing a joint interview with my brother when he started comedy for some paper in England. And we're talking about our childhoods and the journalists, you know, English journalists like to ask you things about if you come from an urban suburb or they like to ask you certain questions. So they asked, uh, you know, did you get picked up by the cops a lot? And I immediately said no. And Ben was like, yeah,
0: hmm. all the time. Yeah. And
1: I was like, I looked at Ben and thought, oh, yeah, he had a completely different experience. Was that maybe. not your memory? We did, He didn't, I don't know, He maybe didn't talk to me or he didn't tell me. He means like being stopped or being hassled or yeah. some, I just didn't. I didn't think about it, you know? And that's that's when you realize that this is a completely divergent experience that my brothers were having from me. But, I mean, that's always true of siblings, right? You re- you think you're in it together and then you become adults and realize that all kinds of things were not the same.
0: I mean, well, sure. I mean, it having a girl and talking to my sister a little bit differently now uh, and understanding how early girls are sexualized by the grown men in the world. Right. Um, Is that something that you were dealing with when you were like 12?
1: Um, Well, I think I was uh, uh, protected by um, extreme frumpiness. And, and, (laughs) And now that I think about it, I think it might have been a conscious decision. Like I was reading something about anorexia somewhere recently. And the journalist who had been anorexic was explaining that for her it was about removing herself from the sexual market. She didn't want right. to be, and so she starved herself so that her body was outside of the that whole world. And I think, in my own way, by eating a lot and refusing to in any way um, dress nicely, or I just didn't want—I didn't want to be part of it. You know, I wanted to be, and I was left entirely left alone my entire adolescence because I just wasn't in—I wasn't in that game. I was just not purposely. Well, I think now it must have been. I wouldn't. If you'd asked me then, I would have been like, "Oh, woe is me!" You know, uh, my glasses, my braces, my crazy hair, my weight, my terrible clothes. But I think a part of it must have been subconsciously a way of staying in my child world and reading books and not being popular in that way. I think.
0: So in high school, you were like the nerd. I
1: I was a total nerd. I had good friends, but I was not in the. There's a separate universe of. Hot girls who were doing this and that, and I was nowhere near that world. You know, it mm. just didn't come into my life at all. Mm. Um,
0: Roxanne Gay's book *Hunger*.
1: Oh, she—that's a good example. Yeah, oh. she talks about it too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean a much was... more extreme. Yeah. Version, yeah. But, um I think girls when they get to twelve can find all kinds of ways of opting out. You know, some of them are really self-harming. Yeah. Um, anorexia being the the key example. I I've never been a very um self-harming person you know yeah. i'm quite addicted to uh pleasure so I, I even though i was sad in my adolescence i wasn't again i f- call it i would call it ordinary unhappiness you know i wasn't acutely miserable <laughs> i had my books i had my family <laughs> i had my friends even if they were slightly freakish and I, I it was it was fine it was the world i wanted to be in
0: but you're not ordinarily unhappy now
1: no now now i am um I, I think I have a lot of joy. I still am. Uh, my preoccupation when I was young was death. It remains death. I can't, you know, I can't. God, why? T- because <laughs> people always say that as if it's not the only thing which is definitely going to happen to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so for that reason, I find it quite preoccupying. And so it, it, I would say it puts a limit on on my, um, not on my pleasure, because I also think it's the only thing that makes uh, life meaningful.
0: I was at a funeral on Monday.
1: You're going to be going to a lot more. We both are. This is
0: my third in six weeks. Yeah. And it was like...
1: It's that age. you got
0: to be kidding. I know, right? Right. In our 30s, we go to lots of weddings. In yeah. our 40s, we go to lots of funerals.
1: Yeah. Um. That part... Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think, why isn't everybody running, screaming through the streets, given what's about to happen? Because mm. um, I thought we were very death-denying. Uh, the people I knew and the culture I came from in England in the 80s and 90s. Now, I don't think death-defying even begins to cover it. Now it's like death obliterating. Now there are people in Silicon Mm. Valley literally spending millions of dollars trying to work out a way not to die. So that childhood mentality has spread up to the very highest echelons of government and uh, policy. So now I really... uh, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. And so when I'm writing, more than anything, I think of a memento mori, that writing should always... My writing, anyway, has the purpose of always saying and remember death. I think it's important that people remember it. It's important so that you behave in a civilized way with others, recognizing them as beings that will die, and and also that you behave reasonably in the world.
0: I mean, it is, the, it is incredibly humbling when you really come face to face with mortality. Like, yeah. I know at that funeral I was at, there were people who did not like each other in life. Right. Who showed up and were like hugging, smiling? Right. Let's trade numbers. Let's like reconnect because, right. like, whatever right. we bickered about doesn't ten matter. years ago, it, it so, so doesn't matter.
1: Everything will come to nothing. Literally, everything you do. Um, <laughs> so, so for that reason, uh, when we were talking about success earlier, to me, it is defined by the completion of certain tasks, even though you know they're going to come to nothing. That, that's as much as I can imagine. Just completing it to my own satisfaction. I have a I, the inevitable. I have a
0: idea of the answer to this question, but it's something I ask everybody: Right? Um, what is it about you, personally, that has led to the success that you've had? Oh,
1: um, I I don't um, I don't reflect on that very much. I, uh, I if I think about my my family in general, I, I suppose we have a lot of willpower one way or another. Mm. Um, that's definitely helpful. There, Th- there are much brighter and brilliant talents. I come across them all the time who aren't as pig-headed as, as me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's what I thought, hoped that you say. It's what yeah. I've heard, that you have this willpower all right. that's pushing you in the in the right direction.
1: I, I think so. I mean, it's. there's another kind of talent, like we're talking about Nina, where it's just genius and chaos is in its wake and everybody's weeping and the children are ruined and it's disaster and chaos everywhere you look. But, but there's no replacement for what someone like that has. That, to me, is the highest thing. Mm. I, I don't even uh, aspire to that. I just want to make good work (laughs) that's
0: it (sighs) you see what I'm talking about do you see the brilliance the fun the cool the humility and yet a woman driven by an iron willpower to read and write to protect her creative time from any and all distractions so important and so impressive and so hard for me to know her is to admire her lots of gems in this one thank you for listening and thank you zadie for your time and your openness i'm on twitter at toray and on instagram at toray show please stop by and say hi and if you like the show please subscribe rate and review and tell a friend who you think would like the show toray show is written by me toray and produced by chris colbert and matt ford With help from shelby royston and in association with cadence 13 studios we're beaming to you from the amazing borough of brooklyn baddest place in the world and we will be back next wednesday with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet we live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to doordash if you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash.